Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Daniel chapter 2. And just to give a little recap, if we could put the first image up of the map. There were basically four players, four players, and you can take, you can go into your encyclopedia, you can go online, it's amazing. You look at 2 Kings, you look at Jeremiah, you look at all the scripture, and it matches perfectly with biblical archaeology, with um, the encyclopedia, etc. All these nations did exist, some still do, some don't. But what you had is four basic players. You had Egypt over here, you had the Assyrian Empire, you have the Babylonian Empire that rose up afterwards, and then you have, uh, at the time, God's people who were in this area right here, this small area. And just starting from 722 BC, the Assyrians came and they conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, expatriated the people, mixed with them, brought in a lot of pagan influences. And then when the Assyrian king Assurbanipal dies, the uh, Nabopolassar, who's a Chaldean, rises up and with the full might of the Babylonians and the fact that Assyria is now vulnerable, they attack and start to take out Assyria and Babylon rises as a, a world power. Now, what's very interesting is in right around 605 BC was the Battle of Carchemish. This is where Egypt and Assyria were in their death throes. And basically what happens is the Assyrian Empire still wants to hold on to power, but they're losing. They're playing defense. And they start to move north and west and eventually end up at Carchemish. They move their capital. And what happens is the Assyrians unite with the Egyptians to fight the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar. And it's a decisive battle, whooping the Egyptians bad so that they're not much of a major player in that region. They can harass different kingdoms, but they really don't have the might. As a matter of fact, in the Bible, under King Josiah, you had Josiah ends up stopping uh, Pharaoh Necho and his forces, I think at Megiddo, before they end up at Carchemish. So when the Egyptians finally arrive there, and they uh, unite with the Assyrians, they just can't beat the Babylonians. And that really changes things. After King Josiah in Judah, in the southern kingdom, you had four kings. You had Jehoahaz, who ends up being imprisoned by the Egyptians. You have Jehoiakim. That should ring a bell, because in Daniel chapter 1, he was the king under the first siege of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. And Daniel and his three friends get to be deported in that first siege wasn't so bad, temple still standing, okay? Um, Jehoiakim plays with his loyalties. He's a vassal under Babylon, then decides he's not paying tribute. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't get the joke on that one. Um, the Israelites, or the Judeans, start to rely more on Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh Hophra, the next Pharaoh, instead of relying on God, because Jeremiah said, hey, knock it off. If you just let... You know, I'm humbling you through the Babylonians. Habakkuk comes to mind. So Jeremiah basically says to the kings and the people, stop resisting them, because if you resist them, you're going to make it worse. Well, they didn't listen, of course. So you have after um, Jehoah Josiah, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim has a son, Jehoiachin, who ends up being imprisoned by the Babylonians and later is released by evil Merodach. Funny names. You know, I've got all these names floating around in my head. So basically, after him comes Zedekiah, the last king of, of Jerusalem, Judah. And what happens is, Zedekiah comes to Prophet Jeremiah, and he says one last time, you've got to stop resisting these people. This is what God says. Doesn't listen. Again, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't get the joke. He comes back. He besieges again. This time, he comes back with a vengeance. He destroys the temple and uh, burns the city, and here's the irony, is the poor were being oppressed, and Nebuchadnezzar ends up taking a lot of the nobility and expatriating them, 
And you know who's left in the land with all these houses and vineyards? The poor. So, you know, I don't know how you don't see God's hand in what happens for those that are naysayers, but I think it's pretty fascinating. So today we're going to go through the scripture. We're going to go through Daniel chapter 2, and we're going to look at this epic dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. So he's finally conquered a little bit of a, a pox, a little bit of a, you know, a reprieve, and Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and he's troubled by it, and of course, Daniel, through God, interprets it for him. And I've got to tell you, this book was written 2,600 years ago. This book was also confirmed in the Septuagint, which was 3rd century B.C., and other ancient manuscripts. I tell you, the biggest atheist or naysayers to God's word, when they actually do an honest research, many of them become believers, because they can't refute the evidence that's out there. Something that needs to be considered. So, Daniel chapter 2, starting with verse 1. Now, in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I have had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will give you the interpretation. What's a dream? When I had my sleep apnea surgery, I learned a lot about stages of sleep and dreaming and all that kind of jazz. And uh, series or dreams are really a series of images, ideas, emotions, and sensations that ubiquitously come into the mind during the fifth stage of sleep, which is also rapid eye movement, REM sleep. Now, a person usually doesn't remember their dreams unless they're awakened during this dream state. And then they go into consciousness and the memory takes a snapshot of what they just experienced and it ends up in the memory banks. It's actually very, the brain is an incredible piece of machinery. You know, and and I, I just talked to a, a doctor, um, I was a neurologist, and he said, you know, we've made so many advances in the human body. He goes, but we're still in the dark about the brain. No matter how much we learn, there's so, so much more to the brain that we don't know. Dreams are healthy for the brain and the mind, and the best way for me to explain it is if you have one of them old pool filters that's running all day, keeping the pool clean, putting certain chemicals in there, at the end of the day, you have to back flush the filter. Otherwise, the pump breaks down and some, you know, the pool starts developing algae and all that kind of stuff. Well, dreams are a way of the, the mind, the brain, to start to back flush a lot of this information. Most of the dreams don't even make any sense. But dreams can have simple interpretations, like loss of control. When I was going to college, one of my dreams, I considered it a nightmare, was uh, I don't know where my classes are. You know, I'm walking around all day on the campus and I can't find. So there's something in my life that I'm uneasy with. Another one is when I became a pastor, and I never had this dream before I became a pastor, was to be up here and I can't find my notes and people are getting fidgety and I'm starting to panic. So these are simple interpretations, but there's a whole class of understanding of dreams called onerology. However, most of the time, dreams don't mean much. Now, there are times that God gives these dreams, gives certain type of dreams to people to get their attention, maybe in a way that disturbs them because they're not listening to him when they're fully awake. God can do whatever he wants. So Nebuchadnezzar goes to sleep thinking about his kingdom. And we'll find out again, God is involved in this. Now I said this before, that men and women, when they're married to the world, this is all they think about. When you're in the world, all you think about is conquering, getting, accumulating, and then what's it all for? Like we learn in Ecclesiastes. And then, how do I stay there? I'm on top, how do I stay on top? That's got to be anxiety-producing in itself. But as Christians, we need to take comfort in knowing that God is directing our lives and that he's in charge of our future and that we take comfort in that. And a Christian who really has a maturity, no matter what's going on in their life, you know, they may panic in the beginning, but eventually they, they mellow out and they realize, you know, I just trust God on this. So Nebuchadnezzar obviously is not a godly man. Verse 5, but the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made an ash heap. 
must have been pretty difficult working for Nebuchadnezzar, you know what I'm saying? But he says, not only do I want you to interpret the dream, I want you to tell me what I dreamed, right? And the punishment for failure was death to, the, to the, his counselors and his families and to destroy their homes so that they wouldn't be remembered anymore in Babylon. Verse 6, however, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. They answered again and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will give its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain time because you see that my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time or the situation has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing that the king requires, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Remember I told you that the Bible records history? It records conversations. Conversations are not always factual. These people are pagans. They don't know the one true God. So what they made is a false statement, but the Bible records its history, this false statement that they make. For this reason, the king was angry and very furious and gave a command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out and they began killing the wise men and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. So there's this banter between the king and his counselors trying to buy some time. You know, what do we do? We don't even know what he dreamed. He didn't say anything. How will we know this? It's impossible. But I find something very interesting here. The king and his counselors are worldly. They're not godly. And Christians, when we play in the world stage and we love the world, first of all, the Bible says that the love of the Father is not in us if we love the world. Now, let's make the dichotomy between the rebellious world and God so loving the world, what's the rub? It's that God loves people. We're to love people, but we're not to love the world system because it's controlled by the enemy, Satan. So a few things happen. Number one, a worldly king and worldly counselors have mutual distrust for each other. Verse 9, he calls them liars and corrupt. And when we love the world, there is no trust and there is no truth. Now all these alliances that, and I'm going through uh, First Kings Wednesday night, all these alliances and treaties that Solomon, King Solomon made with surrounding nations, when the next guy took over, they were all null and void. Working so hard in the world to build these alliances and then realize that in one stroke of a pen, somebody dishonest can take, out, take our legs out from under us. So we need to trust God. Number two, verse 10, he says that there's no person on earth who could accomplish this. But they left out the godly and the godly's access to the throne. Even in the New Testament, in Hebrews 4.16, it says that we can boldly come to God's throne of grace, of course, respectfully, and find that grace and that help in time of need. As Christians, we should be constantly going before the throne of grace, seeking his counsel. 3, verse 11, he says, Only the gods can accomplish this, but they don't interact with people. How sad. Even today, these false gods, no matter what somebody is into, some of their gods that they worship are so mean and, and people are in so much bondage to this, this false system. Even religion today is hopeless because religion does not provide a relationship with our creator. Right? Christianity does. It's God reaching down to us to put forth the olive branch. You know, Christ's blood-stained arms reaching down to us and asking us to take his hand, shed his blood for the remission of our sins. That's relationship that's hope filled not hopeless for verse 12 the king decides he's going to kill all of his counselors when we play in the world this is what happens right may not be as bad as this situation but we trust the world instead of trusting the lord we do it to our own peril and many find that wide road that leads to destruction jesus said the narrow road that leads to everlasting life few find it understand that it appears that they're already starting to kill people. And Arioch, who's the captain of the guard, he's the executioner, um, he comes for the Hebrews. 
right? Now remember, Daniel and his three friends are deported. They're taken to Babylon, and they're, they're trained to be something in that strata. And you could imagine Daniel and his friends saying, gee, we just got here, now they're going to kill us. You know, we have to look at the Scripture for truly what it is. I mean, we start to see, and I get it, you know, Bible stories are made palatable and all this stuff, but sometimes they're unrealistic. You know, Daniel, when he was thrown in the lion's den, they had a practice of not feeding the animals on purpose when they were going to sense, it was sport, blood sport, and they would watch the, the lions tear people to fle- flesh, and this was what ungodly people do when they have nothing to do. You know, you know we, we see some of these stories, and you see pictures of, of Daniel uh, petting these pretty fuzzy lions and, and stroking their manes, and they're meowing to him, and, you know, that's not reality. They threw him into the pit. He probably sprained something on the way down, and he's got all these lions around him, but God intervened to save him. So we have to really understand, no matter what we're going through in life, they went through stuff too, and they trusted God. Verse 14. Then, with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree from the king so urgent or harsh? Then Arioch made the decision known to Daniel. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time, that he might tell the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the uh, men of Babylon. So Daniel tries to reason with Arioch, the the executioner, and it's amazing how God in these situations, some of these these, Hebrew boys um, in the New Testament, some Christians, they, they found favor with some of the authority figures and it, um, it, it was to their benefit. And probably their demeanor and their behavior. It was a, a good witness. You know, and Arioch, he's, he's willing to go along with it instead of, listen, you're an executioner. You don't have touchy-feely feelings inside. You kill people. This is what he did. But there was something about these four, and of course God's intervention, that he, he gives them a chance. You know, give me a little time. Give us a little time that we can hopefully crack this dream. We're going to go to God over this. So what did Daniel and his friends do? Did they read a self-help book? Did they go on the internet? Did they practice positive confession? By the way, that's rooted in Eastern mysticism, just so you know. It has no place in Christianity. No, they didn't. They went to prayer. And as believers, you know, we've heard this in successive Sundays when Pastor Tom was here. He talked about prayer. When our missionaries from the Middle East were here, uh, they talked about prayer. And I don't tell people what to say when they're a guest speaker. They just say it. They pray about it, and, I, and I'm blessed. I get to sit in back, and I enjoy it too. But prayer is so important. And in the hustle and bustle of, of the Western illusion, what happens is a lot of Christians don't prioritize prayer. The, the, the venues for prayer are lightly attended. The just coming together for prayer when we're with other Christians. God says, come anytime to my, my throne. Talk to me. I, I want to work with you. I want to I communicate with you. That's what prayer is. So why wouldn't we do it? I tell you, when we don't pray, we do it to our own peril. You know, even when some say to me, hey, Pastor Joy, I need to meet with you about a matter, and they don't tell me what it is, I go to prayer. I'm like, Lord, I don't know what they're going to say. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm more successful when I pray about revealing something. And, and then I tell them, you pray too between now and then. And when we get together, it's, it's an awesome thing. I just may basically confirm what God has spoken to them if we're both praying people. And that's, that's what it's all about. Verse 19. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with him. This is amazing. This is like you could call it a psalm of Daniel. It's like one of the Psalms. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might. You have made known to me what we asked of you. 
for you have made known to us the king's demand. So Daniel receives an answer from God and he praises God for it. The gist of the whole thing is basically, Lord, no matter what's going on, this guy's a bloodthirsty king, he's a pagan, he doesn't know you, he's ready to kill us, but Lord, you can do anything. And and we know that and we believe that and we trust in you and, and, and you did it again and you never fail us. And I have to ask the question, you know, well, Daniel faced a bloodthirsty, hot-tempered, and capricious king. Just so you know, any of you can take the sermon, pick it apart. You know, you're, you don't believe the Bible, you're whatever, just pick it apart. And go to, go to your good resources, go to history, go to archaeology. Go ahead, let's talk, prove it wrong. Nebuchadnezzar existed. Right? This is all in, in the textbooks, this is all in the history books. I remember as a kid, Hammurabi's Code and the Mesopotamia and all that stuff that I didn't think I'd ever use. It's coming back to me. But, so this is what Daniel faces, this hostile king. What are you facing? Money problems? Health problems? Relationship issues? A hostile boss? Is your hostile boss worse than Nebuchadnezzar? Some of you might say yes. I don't know. But the bottom line is, if God is for us, who can be against us? So Daniel said, I have the answer. Now finish killing those no good, no nothing pagans. No, he didn't say that. Verse 24. He says, Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. Wow. Mercy. There are plenty of maxims in Scripture, and one of them is those who show no mercy will not be shown mercy. We should be people of mercy. What do we do, Christians, when we have the upper hand? Maybe at our job or whatever. When when we're in the catbird seat, what do we do? Do we desire to slay the ungodly? That wasn't Daniel's... uh, This is the Old Testament. People think the Old Testament is not. It's not different than the New. But he didn't desire to slay them. And as a matter of fact, the fact that he spared their lives caused them grief later on because of their jealousy of him. But Daniel was a man of mercy. And we need to be people of mercy as well. Verse 25. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and thus said to him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, remember they changed their names, They stripped them of their identities when they went to Babylon. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, And you see this back and forth between their Babylonian names and their Hebrew names. He says, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, the secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. By the way, that was very bold. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. So Daniel makes a clear dichotomy between the true God and the false gods that the Babylonians were worshiping. Now, sometimes, and this is where we really need to be in prayer, sometimes we have to be bold but not obnoxious. Listen, I've seen it, you've all seen it, obnoxious Christians. You would think that their whole goal is just to irritate people. That's not what we're supposed to be. You know, we're to be bold, but to be loving. How does one do that? By the power of the Holy Spirit. And he basically said, there's only one true God and he can do the impossible. You could say that Daniel was practicing apologetics here. Now, read Matthew 23, and you'll talk about people have this idea of Jesus that's just not reality. Matthew 23, he says some pretty harsh things to the religious leaders, but he said it in love, and he said it so that it would prick their heart so they would desire to be changed through conviction. Some of them did, some of them didn't. And also, Daniel gave all glory to God, a maxim that I was learned in, in, uh, in ministry was never steal God's glory. Now, on any given day, you can watch something on Christian TV or you can hear 
a message that somebody gives you, and there's plenty of guys and gals out there stealing God's glory. I actually listened to a CD. It had such an impression on me as I was driving. I can tell you, this had to be 10 or so years ago. I had such, it had such an impression, a negative one on me, that I remember where I was driving. <laughs> I was on Davidson's Mill Road heading west towards Route 130, and I hear this pastor within 45 minutes of us, bigger church than ours, and he's saying, I got the Holy Spirit. I'm going to release him. And all I could think was, I looked at the, my CD player, and I'm like, oh, no, he didn't. You know what I'm saying? And, and all I could think of is we have pets, and we have, like, cat carriers, and, you know, we let the cat in and out to go to the vet. All I could think of was this guy had the hubris to think that he had the Holy Spirit in a cat carrier, and he was going to release it to the congregation. I don't have power over the Holy Spirit. I beg, I ask for the Holy Spirit. Never steal God's glory. There are just some things that we in leadership cannot do. You understand? And, and there's a lot of things like that out there, and it's actually pretty sad. But Daniel gives all glory to God. Verse 29. He said, As far as you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living. But for our sakes, who made known the interpretation to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. Wow. So Daniel gives the two things that were asked for. He gives the dream. He gives the interpretation of the dream, as we'll see. He also gives the preamble to what the king was thinking before he fell asleep. This is our God. The king must have been floored. And he it must have really piqued his curiosity. And, and we'll see later on in the chapters how uh, Nebuchadnezzar has an affinity towards the God of the Hebrews. But the preamble of what the king was thinking before he fell asleep. He tells the king... Basically, he reveals to him what's on his heart because God revealed that to him. So the king was, was worried about this massive empire. Here's the funny thing. In the world, we build stuff. In the world, we accumulate stuff. In both of my professions, callings, I've seen death. I've seen death early. I've seen people amass things. I mean, the Egyptians did this. They put all their stuff in the tombs and thinking it was going to carry into the next life. Sadly enough, they put people in there too, and they died. It was horrible. But Americans do that too. People live like this. They're going to be here for another 30, 40, 50 years, and that's not always the case. But again, this, this carries not only into the world, but also sadly enough into the church. I mean, what are we building? What massive, you know, even some ministries, they're just unmanageable. They become behemoths because it, it just, it's just an ego-driven um, empire. It just keeps going and going. And then there's a worry. I can't manage this. It's too big. What's the issue? So the king has this, this trouble. He's troubled by this. And here he gets his answer. Verse 31. He says, You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. The image's head was of fine gold, and its chest of arms and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and, and gold were crushed together like pulverized and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. I can almost liken this to the parables where you see something and then you take a spiritual illustration from that. And we continue. What, what's the interpretation? Verse 36. This is the dream. Now we. Daniel didn't say I. Notice that. Now we. We'll t you know, it's amazing. Was it, um, I forget which prophet it was. Well, there's a lot of them. Habakkuk, I think, was one of them. Um, Nehemiah. We've sinned, O Lord. Right? We've sinned. He didn't say, don't look at me. They sinned. He said, we sinned. So we take personal responsibility, but we also um, 
don't take it for ourselves. There's a time to use we and there's a time to use I. He says, this is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the fields and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. But after you shall rise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these king, of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever." Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain and, the, and its interpretation is sure. How confident are we when God shows us something? Sure? Are we positive about it? Because we should be when God reveals something to us, when God does a wonderful work. Daniel had incredible conviction about his relationship with his God. So the interpretation of the dream, if you're a student of the Bible, you know that Daniel chapter 7 is Daniel, I'm sorry, Daniel chapter 7, yes, is Daniel's dream, and there are successive beasts associated with successive kingdoms. Now, when I go into 7, which I'm not going to give it away now, it's all going to pop because we're going to refer back to this. So I'm not going to take too much out of this because Daniel 7 really makes it, it it's just amazing. I don't want to give it all away. But the king dreams of this huge metal man figure, and each part represents a successive kingdom. If we could put up the second image. So this is, you know, artist interpretation of what Daniel dreamt, the head of gold, Right? Uh, you had Nebuchadnezzar as the head. It's, you know, it's, it's ultimate rule, ultimate monarchy. As you go down, you have the breast and arms of silver, which is the Medo-Persian Empire. It was inferior in two ways, and probably some could find more out of this. But number one, it wasn't an autonomous decree. The Medes and the Persians had to agree with what they were doing in the kingdom. Okay? And the second thing was they needed both nations to come together to actually take on and defeat Babylon. The belly and thighs of brass, you have the Greco-Macedonian kingdom. And of course it says the, the lion, the bear, the leopard, and that's commensurate with Daniel chapter 7, which we're going to get to. The legs of iron, the great Roman Empire, the dragon or the, the hideous beast, and then the feet and the toes, part iron and part clay. If we could leave that up for a while. So Babylon is, is conquered by the Medes and the Persians. After that, came the Greeks. Now, for those who are not uh, students of history, at least we know right around Greeks and Romans, yeah, 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 we're familiar with that. You know, at least we learned something from that uh, years ago. But the Medes and the Persians came, and then the Greeks came. Now, this is interesting because there's two thighs and a belly. The Greeks and the Macedonians teamed up to beat the Medes and the Persians. And I, just from uh, strength training, um, I think about the, the thighs and the belly are our core. If we're going to run, if we're going to do something powerful with our bodies, they have to be very strong. Alexander the Great conquered the known world and then some with breakneck speed. He actually went so far in conquering that he ended up in India and he fought King Porus with King Porus's elephants and he, defeat, he defeated King Porus. He was a master, master general of the battlefield. Then the Romans came, and we, we're all familiar with the Romans, and then the outcropping of the Roman empires with the feet and the toe, the iron mixed with clay. Even Jesus in Luke 21:24 spoke about 
the times of the Gentiles. They have to be fulfilled. And when they are fulfilled, then the Lord Jesus' kingdom will come. It'll be a kingdom, of course, of righteousness. And none of these kingdoms will ever exist anymore because they're of man. Man's self-rule versus theocracy, so to speak. So a few things that we learn from this. Number one, as you go down the image from the head all the way down, we move forward in a timeline. So we, listen, we all study timelines and you know, we use usually from left to right. Here would be the past, here would be the future. So the top going down is, top is the past or the present for Daniel, and then it goes into the future as you go. There's a lot of things about this that I actually had to leave some stuff out because it was just too much. What you also find is that as the metals and the materials go down, they decrease in value. Clay is a dime a dozen. Clay's not worth anything. So you go from gold, by the time you get to clay, it isn't worth anything, okay? And, and this kingdom the kingdoms start to degrade in a certain way. The second thing that we learn is if you look at the atomic mass of each of the items, if you look at the periodic table, right, of elements, you find that as you go down the metallic figure, the, the atomic mass drops. Some people say atomic weight. Well, weight is mass subjected to gravity, and then you get you, mass subject to gravity, you get weight. But really, the periodic table is a period of atomic mass. So it's, it's heavier at the top, and it's lighter at the bottom, which makes it weaker, right? Because, you know, we live in this world, and anything top-heavy is going to be weaker and, and, and subject to falling over or instability. And this basically tells us that as mighty as these kingdoms of man were, it's unstable. It will only last for a season. Three, unlike the figure, the stone or the boulder uncut with human hands, meaning it's divine. All these kingdoms were made and, and came to prominence because of man. But the stone that smashes the feet and topples the figure and grinds everything to powder is God. It's the Lord's kingdom which is coming. Matthew 21:44. Jesus even spoke about this. He said, anyone who falls on this stone, referring to himself, will be broken. And that's a good thing. We need to empty ourselves of ourselves when we come to Christ. There's some things about us, probably a lot of things, depending on who we are, that have to change. We need to be broken. Right? We need to be repentant. But he said, he goes on, anyone whom this stone falls on will be ground to powder. We live in an age of grace. We live in an age where we can freely come to the cross and adore Christ. But there will come a point where the age of grace runs out and then those who are still in rebellion will be judged and they'll be ground to powder. We can either worship Jesus out of adoration or obligation. I choose adoration. I'll take the first one for 500. Okay? As we continue through this, we see that man's self-rule will only last for a time. So what do we find in kingdoms made by men? We find suffering, poverty, caste system, wars, killings, famines, discrimination, ungodliness, and the list goes on. But the Lord's kingdom will be a fair and righteous kingdom when that's ushered in. Fourth, as you move down the figure, check this out. For those of you that really enjoy history, what we move is from monarchies and dictatorships at the top as we move down the figure to democracies and representative governments, to three, the eventual confederation of nations that will be ruled by the Antichrist. And we'll see that in chapter 7. You know, it's something to hear sermons, and then it's something to study the book on your own. And I'm like, oh, and I found this, and I found that, and, and my notes were like five, six pages long. I'm like, oh, i got to cut this down a little bit. So it's exciting to me. The last kingdom, the Roman Empire, kind of goes away, but kind of doesn't go away. You see? And it's, here's the interesting thing. The legs are long. They're almost as long. I mean, our legs are almost as long or as long as our torso. So you, if we're looking at time, maybe it's just me, but I see that they last a long time, and there's two legs. But what happens with the Roman Empire is it leaves a power vacuum. Now, you know that if there's a vacuum, something has to fill that vacuum. So over the years, over the last 2,000, well, less than 2,000 years, Roman Empire fell, it's arguable, around 400s AD, but something would always take its place. Now, I'm going to go through history, and I, I studied a lot of history. History is not, some people find it offensive, but you can't change history. History is history. 
So let's talk about history. Let's talk about the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire acquiesces to, at some point, the Holy Roman Empire under Charlemagne. Also acquiesces to an admitted Roman church. So now the emperors don't have so much rule anymore, but the popes have rule. And again, you can go to Vatican archives and find all this. It's history. They called some of them anti-popes. And they ruled and controlled Europe. And some of them were bloodthirsty and did very evil things. Um, that area acquiesced eventually to imperialistic Europe, right? At one point, Britain controlled parts of Africa, parts of India, and the Middle East is largely a mess because when the Western powers pulled out, they left all these divided borders that caused a lot of fighting and caused really a powder keg that we're experiencing today. Imperialistic Europe gave way to nationalistic Europe. We see that in World War I and World War II. Nationalism. Archduke Ferdinand was assassinated, which was the spark to World War I. And a lot of this latent problems that never got dealt with ended up in World War II. But it was nationalistic Europe. Everybody was nationalistic. Six, the last one is a confederation of European states which the Antichrist will rule. Now, we can already start to see the jockeying. Now, some guys from the pulpit predict stuff. I didn't hear from God, so I'm not predicting anything. Okay, you, all, you, all you do is get into trouble when you do that kind of stuff. But I will say that you see a lot of jockeying with the European states and quasi-pseudo, quasi-European states. You look at NATO. There's nations in NATO. You look at the European Union. You look at the G7. That used to be the G8 until they kicked Russia out. I don't know where they are today. But you see a lot of these jockeying of positions with these countries. And eventually, the Antichrist will rule. But it's... A, it's it seems strong, but it's fragile, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Let's look, at, let's look at the two legs, and I'll go through this quickly as well. Roman Empire always had the two legs. You see all these um, symbolism and everything about that metal man figure that Nebuchadnezzar dreams about. Now let's look at the Roman Empire. Roman consul and Roman consul. They ruled together. They had equal power. Look at Roman Empire. You had the Rhine and the Danube, rivers that separated and divided up much of, of Rome. Three, you have religious and you have political. Four, you have Rome and you have Constantinople. Constantinople is actually now Turkey, but Constantinople was a, a tremendous powerful city that had religious power as well. And you, you would see the fighting between Rome and Constantinople. Uh, five, you have the East and the West. Six, you have the Allies and the Axis. And we can go on and on and on, but I, again, I think it's pretty fascinating. Check this out. This all happened 2,600 years ago. How do you not see God's hand in this? You know, Bible scholars or, or you know, pastors later on, we can look back and, go and say, oh, this is fun. You know, look at history and write all the... Daniel's getting this stuff. The king's getting this stuff. And it's history before it happens. That's one of the powers of explaining or expressing the reality and the actuality of God is through God's prophecy, the power of his prophecy, history before it happens. Let's put this in perspective. Daniel and the king are having this conversation. They're in the head of gold. They're not experiencing anything lower than the neck. So let's keep that in mind. Now, other kings have risen up and they try to be world-dominating power, but they don't really fit the bill. Napoleon's conquest and the Nazis. Incidentally, they both failed miserably when they tried to invade Russia. It wasn't a smart idea. Although the Nazis were in North Africa, Europe, and part of the Middle East. They were actually moving fast, and I believe God cut them off. You look at the Islamic conquests. There were three battles, students of history, that stopped the Islamic conquest from completely Islamicizing Europe. The three battles were the Battle of Tours, where the Umayyad Caliphate tried to advance. You had the uh, Battle of Vienna, and you had the Siege of Malta. Those three decisively stopped Islamic conquest from taking over all of Europe. And fourth, you have the communists. Russia seemed to expand, but she could only go so far to the west, and eventually she lost those eastern bloc countries. So you see communism in different forms trying to do this, but they, communists can't agree among themselves. And now China's really in trouble with their economy, so we'll see what happens on that. Two points I want to make as we close. <laughs> Got your history for the morning. Okay. Um, number one is the word nations in Greek is ethnos. That's where we get the word ethnicity. 
You know how many people were killed over the millennia over these are my people, those are those people. Let that not be in the church. You know, people get nationalistic, they get really weird about their background and where they came from. Not in the church. John sees all types of tribes, peoples, nations come together and sitting together in heaven. They're all diverse, they're all different. You know, I look at this church and I see a lot of difference differences and I know many of you the feds didn't have to come in and tell us to diversify when you are under the umbrella of Christ we all just come together under man's rule there's always division there's always separation there's always us looking at somebody else saying they're different from me so therefore I either want to conquer them I'm afraid of them I don't want them to that's not that shouldn't be in the church today the news is obsessed over dividing us over every little stupid thing we, the church, should show a different face to society and the community. Number two, we need to separate. Some people say, well, where's the United States? I believe that the United States loses her power over time and for various reasons. And you could say that the United States was an outcropping of the Western powers anyway. Um, and we do this. We get, I call them, merocentric. We look at the Bible through American eyes, and we can't do that. We can't do that. That's why I put all that display about the maps, because there's a whole world where stuff is happening, and really, it's, it's not, we're not involved. You see what I'm saying? As Christians, we need to be loyal to God first. I love my country. I love the freedoms. But the Western illusion sometimes clouds our judgment when it comes to looking at the Scripture. And we need to be very careful of that. And the prosperity gospel caters to that Western Christianity illusion where we're entitled. Mine, give me, I want. I w and they're really good at that. And you just go to God and you tell him, give me, I want, I'm entitled. Not, no, not really. You see, God saved us because he loved us. And he saved us when we were still sinners and rebellion against him. We don't deserve salvation. God doesn't owe us anything. But Jesus says, he gives us eternal life and he also gives us abundant life. And we can have an abundant life here and have joy before we even get to his kingdom. But we can't be entitled about it. See, Daniel and his three friends were stripped of their ethnicity, their culture, their names. You see the switching back and forth. The king says to Daniel, he calls him Belteshazzar. He doesn't call him Daniel. God is my judge. That's a Hebrew name. They were stripped of all these things. They were stripped of their language, which they probably talked Hebrew when they were in their prayer meetings and talking to each other. They were stripped of their comforts of home, and God was all that they had. Brothers and sisters, where, how would we fare if that happened to us? Last few verses. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face. This guy is the king of the known world. He is the dominator. He is, you know, feelingless crass, brash, whatever you can think of. He falls on his face, prostrate before Daniel, because he knows what he's saying is true. He doesn't even know how to react. He's, he worships him probably as a god, not knowing any better. And he, he, he goes prostrate before Daniel and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. The king, how many people would have taken advantage of that? The king answered Daniel and said, truly, your god is the god of gods the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon. I think about Joseph, only second to Pharaoh, and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Also, Daniel petitioned the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we're back to their Babylonian names, over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel sat in the gate of the king. Daniel is placed in a leadership position. You know, in this instance, the Bible has a happy ending. But don't let that trip you up. Because especially even in the New Testament, James was, was murdered by Herod and uh, Stephen. The, it was stoned to death. And the, the, the apostles, Paul was beheaded and Peter was crucified upside down. And all these horrible things happened to God's people. Where was God? He was there. We have to be willing to say, Lord, and this is hard, whatever you want, I'll do. Because we have to give up our will. 
we have to completely trust him. And as human beings given, set forth as free moral agents, sometimes it's hard to do that. And some people just say it flippantly, oh God, whatever. Think about what you're saying and pray about what you're saying because it, it can come with, you know, look, look at our brothers and sisters in the Middle East martyred on a daily basis. Ethnic cleansing of, of, of Christians in the Middle East. But the bottom line in all this is human achievements and kingdoms only last so long, but God stands forever. Where are the Babylonians? I tell you what, Babylon, uh, it became bordered and it's now much of Iraq. And sadly enough, ISIS is destroying all the artifacts that prove the Bible to be true, but there's still many more. I saved the articles and the pictures. But where are the Babylons? Where are the Babylonians? I, don't, I haven't met a Babylonian. Where are the Medo-Persians? Where are the Greeks? You know where Greece is? In trouble. The EU had to bail them out. Are you reading the news? This mighty kingdom, Alexander the Great, they're struggling, they're floundering, and they keep having to get bailed out. They can't pay their bills. Where are the Romans? As, as Bible-believing Christians in 2015, sadly enough, this worldly influence gets in the church and, and some are worshiping wealth, pleasure, leisure, education. That's big in American culture. You know, it's, it's almost a, a, an, an underground caste system. Do you have college? Oh, you don't? Oh, sorry to hear that. I went to a four-year school. I graduated from Rutgers. Big deal. Big deal. I, ke I kept a few of the textbooks. They're interesting. And I love education. I love learning about history, but it doesn't make me a better person because one day God's going to start all over again. Everything's going to be ground to dust. And what's going to fill the whole earth? Christ and his kingdom. He's going to remake history, geography, astronomy, the physical laws. And if we're worshiping at the altar of temporal things, where is it going to leave us? Major perspective check. The rock will smash all of man's kingdoms bar none. And it will be ground to a fine powder and disappear. But the rock, the Lord's kingdom, will fill the whole earth. And boy, do we look forward to this. And whose side will you be on? And when that happens, where will you be? Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.